Excuse me. Okay, so uh, last week uh, we had a shortened week because we had uh, we had a guest speaker. Y'all may recall he was uh, a man from India and he spoke for a little bit of time. And then I was hoping that we would get the entire topic on, uh, which was lesson number nine, on the topic of uh, morality. And uh, we didn't finish morality, so we're going to try to wrap that up tonight, and then we're going to jump into the next lesson, which is on uh, the topic of evil and suffering. And uh, if you have, if you, if, so there's handout you can kind of keep up with, and this is the handout. And so I don't know if there was any on the information counter. There were. So if you didn't get one, I'd, I'd encourage you to go out there. There's two. There's basically lesson nine, lesson ten. And uh, there's a lot of blanks. I like to do blanks. Kind of helps you track that you're following. Just helps you. Doesn't help me. Well, it helps me too, so I can keep track of where I'm at. Um, but anyway, there's two handouts. You might want to use them. If you, if you don't want to, that's perfectly fine with me. But anyway, we were talking about morality last week, so I'm just going to kind of briefly jump through my notes and just a reminder of a couple of things. Um, morality is a question. Uh, of what is right and what is wrong, and it's basically uh, things that are sometimes right, sometimes wrong. But they, but not. This isn't. An, we're not talking about ethics. We're really talking about the application of morals. And today we would want to look at. Or last week we looked at what we can learn about what is right and what is wrong. And I gave you some some pretty strong examples. Uh, like, is it okay to torture babies for fun? Remember to ask that question. Is it okay? Uh, for Catholic priests to abuse children and for the church to cover it up. Is that okay? I mean, those are, those are questions about what is right morals. And we looked at those. Remember we talked about, we, I gave you an example of a guy by the name of Oscar Wilde. He was a poet, an Irish poet uh, that, that was in the late 19th century, so uh, just before we get to the 20th century. Uh, and he smugly declared, nothing is right, nothing is wrong. It's either just charming or dull. If you recall that, that that's just, I mean, it doesn't matter what it is. It's either, it either makes me, I'm enjoying it, or, I mean, what is charming? How do you define charming? Well, this is charming. This is dull. Uh, I'm bored. You know how your kids are, right? I'm bored. And so that would be dull. And so that's what Oscar Wilde, Oscar Wilde looked at the world and said, ah, it's either charming or dull. Uh, well, so we're getting right down to making a decision about what is right and wrong. And we, when we looked at Isaiah 5, verse 20, I just, you know, I'm not going to take the time to turn here. I'll just read it. I have it in my notes. It says, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And so um, uh, there's. So we we started there. We went. To, we talked about the nature of morality, and we talked about Moral norms, you know, basically the, the discussion between a, a Christian, well, really between anybody about what's right, what's wrong. You know, what you say is right, I might say is wrong. What I say is wrong, what you say is wrong, I might say is right, and so on. But basically the bottom line is morality, moral norms are known. Everybody knows what's right and wrong. We just know it. It's a, it's a matter of in our heart that we choose to deny that's good or that's bad. For some reason, we made a choice. Moral norms are not physical. We can't discover them with the five sentences. Senses, you know, taste, touch, hearing, sight. What are the five touches? Taste, touch, hearing, smell. I don't smell anything anymore. And the last one, did I say sight? I didn't say sight. Okay, sight. So 
I don't remember things either. Um, anyway. And so moral norms are not physical. Moral norms are forms of communication, and they're found in things like Jesus Christ said in John chapter 14. This is a moral norm. If you love me, keep my commandments. If we love God, we're, we need to keep his commandments. And then we talked about a few other things. Then we talked about the source. Where do morality, where's morals come from? And we basically, we, we went through real quick, four sources of potential. I'm not saying that they're all the source of morality. There's only one valid moral, source of morality. But, but uh, most atheists, uh, people that don't want Christian morals, there's a lot of people that don't want Christian morals, even though they claim to be Christians. Isn't that a wild thing to think about? But anyway, uh, one of the sources that people claim that morals came from the universe. They're just there. Moral laws are just there. It's kind of like, you know, the laws of nature. Moral laws are there. But where did, where did the laws of nature actually come from? Anybody know? Come from God. I'll answer that for you. Uh, and then we, another source is the individual person goes about to establish their own objective morality. So, well, what's moral for you is not moral for me. And, you know, leave me alone. Don't try to push your morals on me and that kind of stuff. Uh, and then we talked about culture and society being uh, a source of morality. And uh, so we see that even today. It's played out on the news every, every day. Uh, you know, what is morality? What is moral in this world? And it's frustrating to a lot of people because, well, my morals don't match up with how society is. Well, but you, you should take on the society's morals is the push today. Anyway, and, then, and of course, the last source is the creator God, the source of all things that exists. And so we've talked about that. We went, we went into detail on those. I'm not going to go back into detail on those things tonight because uh, I do want to get where we're going. So on your handout, uh, I don't know exactly where on the handout. I think it's, it's on the second page on the, on the back side, the moral argument for God. That's the title of that section. That's kind of where we're going to start. And so the moral argument can be stated a couple of different ways. So when we're talking about the moral argument, we really say, what is the argument? This is an argument for God. Where morality comes from, the true source of morality, the true identity of what, a, what morals actually are, helps us prove God is, is, does exist. So here's the moral argument, that, and it can be stated this way. We'll go through this first. First off, uh, if God does not exist, this would be a, de- a denial of God. If, if God does not exist, then moral objective values and duties do not exist. So whether it's, the, whether it's through the universe or your own personal decision for what morals is or the community says uh, what morals are, uh, if God doesn't exist, then, then objective morals don't exist either. And then the second part of this, of this argument is that objective morals and values, they do actually exist. We may not like the fact that there's an objective moral value, an objective moral duty that is laid out in our relationship with God. God has defined what our values and what our duties are. We'll talk about that tonight. He's identified what those values and duties are, and he's saying that's moral. And so it's up to us to choose to live like that. And then the third thing is, is that if if uh, if their duties do not ex- if they don't exist, there's no God. But if they do if they do exist, therefore God exists. If there are moral values in the world, if there are truly objective moral values, 
there is a God. Because they have to come from someplace. They couldn't come from the universe. You remember, if anything comes from the universe, the basic argument is that we developed through evolutionary processes. And we talked about evolutionary processes a few weeks ago. Uh, and so, uh, or if you, you, if, if I decide this is a moral, objective moral thing, and I'm telling you this is how you should live your life in an objective moral thing, and you say, well, that's not objective moral to me, then, then you and me have a d- debate about where do the morals actually come from. And, and so, but they come from God. And so we've decided, we've determined just in those three statements that there is a God. Another way to look at this would be this way. Laws imply a lawgiver. Okay, I just mentioned, for example, the laws of nature. Why do we call it the laws of nature anyway? Because God has ordained, God has established how nature relates to creation. He's decided what the laws are. There's an objective moral, um, an objective moral law. Okay, so if there is an objective law, if there is a lawgiver and he's given an objective moral law, therefore there is a moral law giver. The giver is God. He is the one that has given us the moral of God. Okay, so I use the terms already values and duties. So let me talk about values and duties for just a minute. Values, values would be something that is either good or bad. A value. You place a value on it. It's either good or bad. And a duty is something that is either right or wrong. So values are a a a, a uh, worth statement, and duties are a behavioral statement. Values re- relate to what you what you put on is is it right or wrong, or good or bad, or how good or how bad, and so on. And duties are something that is either right or wrong. Ephesians chapter well, I don't have it up here. Ephesians chapter four verse one says this. Paul says, "I therefore the prisoner of the Lord." Beseech you, Paul, in other words, this is, even though if Paul was the writer, and we all understand this is Paul speaking, you got to keep in mind that every word in the Word of God, the Bible, is written by God through men to you. I don't know if you look at the Bible that way, but that's how you should see the Bible. Every word is written by God through men to you. So when God says, or when Paul says, I beseech you, God is saying, I beseech you. And what's that mean? God is pleading. He's, he's saying, please do this. What does he do? That you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. That you walk worthy. So God is saying, through Paul, to you, walk worthy. That we're putting a value here on this thing. And then he says in Romans chapter 2, verse 14, For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves. Basically, the Gentiles, they they weren't given the word of God as, they weren't given the law like men in the Old Testament when when Moses led Israel out of Egypt and he took them to Mount Sinai. Moses went up to the top of Mount Sinai and he and he met with God there, and God says, I'm going to give you my, my word. I'm going to give you my law. I'm going to give it to you so you can give it to the people of Israel. There weren't Gentiles there. But if a Gentile did, the, did behave, values and duties, behave 
according to what the law said, then by, by virtue of that, is, it's a law in and of itself. That's what Romans chapter 2.14 is saying. So these may seem the same, but they're really distinct. So here's the point. Duties have to do with moral obligations, while values have to do with intrinsic worth. Values are what's it worth. Duties are what are you doing? What are you obligated to do? Moral duties is what are you obligated, moral, what, what is the moral behavior that you should be executing? So while good and right or bad and wrong may seem like they're referring to the same thing, they're not. Good and right is not, not talking about the same thing. But bad and wrong, not talking about the same thing. For example, you are not morally obligated to do something just because it is good for you. Think about that. You're not morally obligated to do something just because it's good for you. How many of you eat too much sugar? Okay, we're all guilty. Are you morally obligated to eat less sugar? No. I mean, but it's a good idea if you did. But that's not a moral position, right? Um, you're not obligated to do something just because it's good. Another example. Get away from food. Becoming a doctor is a good idea. Maybe you got to look, some of you have family members who is in college or going to college, and they, maybe they want to be a doctor. That's a good idea. Be a doctor. But you're not morally obligated to become a doctor. You, you're not morally obligated to go to, okay, well, I got to because that's a moral obligation. No, you don't have to. Additionally, it's sometimes all, all you have in front of you are bad choices from which you have to make a choice. So sometimes your choice may be it may be a bad choice, but it's you have to make a choice. You have to do it. So let me just say this: good versus bad has to do with what something's worth—a thing, a person, or an item. Good versus bad is what something is worth. To say that there's an objective moral value is to say something is good or something is bad, no matter what the person thinks about it. See, without God, without God, there's man has no intrinsic value above any other species on the earth. What makes man better than a mouse? I mean, God made a mouse, but God valued you higher than he did the mouse. Naturalism doesn't like that. Naturalism basically says we're all the same, we're all equal. Whether you're a mouse or a man or or whatever, you... Then you're not just you're 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 no more valuable than they are. To think that we are better than any other creature then is a form of speciesism. There's a lot of isms in the world today. So I'll give you a new one: speciesism, where you think you're better than all the other species in the world. Traditionally, moral value, moral duties, traditionally, so that's moral values. Now, traditional moral, traditionally moral and moral duties are based in God's commandments, such as the Ten Commandments. So if good versus bad has to do with something's worth, right versus wrong has to do with something being obligatory. That's a big fancy word. Moral duties are the obligation to act a certain way, whether right or wrong. How you act, what are you obligated to do? To say that there are objective moral duties is to say that certain actions are right or wrong, regardless of what a person does or thinks. See, if there's no God, what is the basis for what you do? 
If there's no God, what is the basis for anything that we do in the world? I mean, I hope that you're, the, the, the things that you do, I would hope, are motivated, not morally, but motivated by, by God, which makes a, a duty, a responsibility that you do. Evolutionary and atheistic teaching equate man to animals, and animals have no moral obligations to any other species. For example, a lion kills a zebra, but did the lion commit murder? No, he did not. Certain actions, back to humans, certain actions such as incest and rape may not be biologically or socially advantageous, and over time they become taboo, but that doesn't show that these acts are actually wrong. They're just not acceptable. So that doesn't make them right or wrong just because we don't accept that behavior. It doesn't make it a moral right unless we put God in the, in the, in the mix. The challenges to the proof of morals, because there's always a challenge. Morals, morals just exist self ex, as, such as self-existent ideas. Let me get a little bit. I think I was behind. I apologize for that. Or either I doubled up on my stuff. Let me make sure where I'm at. What's that? It's good? Okay. Well, I'm surprised, but I'm glad. <laughs> okay, where am I at now? Here we go. Okay, that's, I think that's where I'm supposed to be. The challenge of proof of morals against morals. So morals supposedly just exist. They're self-existent ideas. Plato, many of you have heard of him, a Greek philosopher back in, you know, two, 300 B.C., uh, thought that it was good. He, Plato thought that good just existed, so atheists claimed the same thing for morals. If good just existed, then morals just exist. There's no basis for moral values. Instead, they just, atheists and people like Plato, just seem to think that to be whatever is a person chooses to, to be is okay. That goes right back to our, our second uh, example about where morality, morals actually come from. Their idea is that there is no basis for moral duties and a person can adopt either good morals or evil morals just as equally. So if you want to be a morally evil person, that's okay. You, you're, you can be as evil as you want to be because it's okay. That's what the, the position actually sounds like. So there's a guy by the name of Uthero, his dilemma, Uthero's dilemma, which goes against God, is part of a dialogue that, uh, that Plato developed. So he says, it goes like this. Is something good because God wills it to be good? Is something good because God wills it to be good? Does God or so? So that would make good arbitrary. If, if it's something that God wills it to be, then God, good is arbitrary. But what about does God approve something because it's good? So this is how God sees things. So, so basically, atheists would say there's two choices about God. Either it's good because it's, it's his will that it's good, or it's good because he says it's good because it's good. What do you think? What, what, is, what does God think? The answer is that neither one of them is correct because God's will something because, and here's the kicker, 
Not because it is good. It's because he is good. God is good. And what God identifies as good, because he is good, it is good. That makes sense? I hope that makes sense to everybody. God is the greatest possible being. God is the greatest possible being. God's nature is what grounds absolute moral right and wrong. It's his nature. What, how, you know, you wouldn't even know what's good and what's, what's not good if it wasn't for God, who is good. What is your comparison of what's good and bad? If, if God is not in the picture, what is the, how, do you, how do you measure what is good if you don't have ultimate good from God? You have no, re, you have no reference of what is good. God has no obligations to anything outside of himself. He simply acts, and what he naturally does is good because it comes from his nature and his essence. Because God is good. Whatever comes from God is good. Whatever God says is good is good. Whatever God views is good is good. The only measurement that we have for what is good is because what God says is good. We don't get to define good. Too many people in the world today want to define what is good and push that their their definition of good on the rest of the world. And so we're constantly battling back and forth about what is good and what is bad. But all we got to do is just turn on the turn up turn over the Bible, open up the Bible and see what God says about that situation. If he says it's good then it's good. If he says it's bad then it's bad. So that would be the cha- some of the challenges to to the proof of morals. So yes That one there? Okay. Well, I apologize. I'm not even sure where that's at. Morals just exist as self-existent ideas. Okay, so that was at the beginning of what we were just talking about. So let me back up. Right before I started talking about Plato, and so I don't have that on the screen. I apologize. So morals, morals just exist as self-existent ideas. That's that's I believe is the blank, and then the last blank should have been the answer uh, about Pharaoh's dilemma when he says there's something good because God wills it, which is this this slide here. Uh, or does God will something good because it is good? And he says that he, he puts his stamp of approval on it that is good. Uh, so the answer is neither because God's will, because God wills something because he is good. Okay, so that's not a blanket. Oh, there it is. Okay. All right. You would not believe how many times I look at these notes and try to make sure that your handouts and my slides match. Okay. Any other questions on morals? So I know we split up the topic of morals last week and this week, and so I hope that that didn't cause a a disconnect from where we were starting out last week and where we ended up this week with morals. But the goal of trying to, what I want you to understand about morals is that morals are defined by what is right, and we define what, what is right by what God says is right. That's where we get our morals.
We don't get our morals from, from society. We don't get our morals from uh, a wish list that I wish this is the way it was. It didn't come. From, it didn't evolve uh, from event, uh, evolutionary processes. The universe can't tell us what morally is right or wrong. But there's people that think that you, the moral morals just appeared randomly in the in the universe because everything appeared randomly in the universe. Okay. Uh, so let's go to the next topic because we got to we got to try to get this whole topic out. It was just um, kind of follows hit right along the same conversation. Um, so uh, after after you have moral morality, and moral morality helps us navigate our morals help us navigate evil and suffering. How do we handle evil and suffering? What do we do regarding evil and Every person in this room has experienced some sort of evil at some point in your life. If you haven't, you're lucky. That's all I can say because everybody faces evil at some point in time and everybody faces some sort of suffering at some point in time. It's just just life. So let me just get started here uh, with the next slide. You guys want to throw up slide the next presentation? So just as a reminder, what we're doing, because we've only got one more lesson next week, maybe that next, next, the last lesson might take two weeks. I, I don't know. But anyway, so we've been kind of going through a study on what's called apologetics. We get that from 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, which says that we should be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh the reason of the hope that's, li- that's, that, that, um, that's in us with meekness and fear. And so t- Peter gave that mandate. And it gives us the foundation of being ready to tell people why we have the faith that we have and so on. And so that's kind of where we're at. So we, we, when we, um, let me ask you this question. Everybody remember what happened there in that picture? Okay. So, um, that's a bad deal. Let me figure out where I want to start in my notes here. I know what I'm looking at the wrong page. Oh, I'm in the wrong lesson. Didn't go back far enough. Okay. So the World Trade Center, evil and suffering are two experiences that have ravaged mankind throughout the history. Everybody's experienced it. So that's an example of the World Trade Center. Another example would be uh, the Sri Lanka tidal wave, you guys may, may or may not remember that, 2005, I believe it was. Millions of people died of that tidal wave because of an earthquake in the, in the bottom of the ocean. Uh, you may not recall this one here too much, the Haiti, the earthquake in Haiti. That was a bad deal. It's still a bad deal. They're still suffering. This, I, mean, I don't remember what year that was now, but, I mean, there's still people suffering. And then, of course, we just got what's going on, crime, crime and... Uh, in criminal acts, criminal behavior. I mean, all of that stuff is all out there. It's really quite inconceivable just how it, how evil humanity can be. You know, you think about that, just how evil man can be with each other, against each other. And it's quite astounding just how much suffering a person can sometimes endure. 
I mean, some people go through some really difficult times and they suffer immensely. And so, and and I was like, how do you, how do you, how do you do that? How do you, in, how do you endure? It's an incredible, amazing thing to think about. There's generally three challenges from the problem of evil. This would be the problem of evil. Well, if there's evil, why is, why don't God deal with evil? That's a that's a that's a challenge that we're addressing here right now. Why doesn't God deal with evil? So it could be stated this way: any evil, any any evil disproves that there is a God. Because didn't I just got done, done saying a few minutes ago that God is good and everything that God has and he identifies good? So then why is there evil? Why didn't God just deal with evil? Why didn't he eliminate evil? Why didn't he take the cancer out of my head? Why does he let anything like this happen to anybody? Evil and suffering form a unique relationship and together they can lead to a serious challenge to the reality of God. Morality is one thing. I mean, what's right, what's wrong, who's in charge, and so on, about behaviors, about values, and about duties. But what do you do with evil? That's a, cha- that's a real serious challenge. So the first part of that, it could be stated that any evil disproves God. This is the most, com- most often presented form of the argument and the one that we're going to focus mostly on. But it could be said that any amount of evil, I mean, any amount of evil could disprove uh, God. But how much is enough? How much is too much? How much is not enough? Evil? I mean, where's, what's, the, what's, the, what's the break point? What is the, what is the threshold? Are the proponents of this point, this, this argument against God, are they just setting about to define evil that they can understand as as the evil they're, they're, they would allow for? I mean, so every person, you know, it's, it's kind of weird when you think about it, but every person tolerates a certain amount of evil. We put up with a certain amount of evil. We allow a certain amount of evil to, to occur. And an atheist would say, this is my threshold. Anything beyond that, this is a challenge to God. Yet, just because we can't account for the evil that does not mean that God does not have in his wisdom a reason for evil. And that's where we draw a difficult line. Just because we cannot account for the evil that's in the world, or even whether it's a small amount or a great big amount, whether it's Mount, uh, you know, a, 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 a tsunami or a earthquake, or a plane crashing into a building, whatever it is, even though we can't account for the evil that's in there, does not mean that that there's not a reason for it. That God, what? Here's the thing: God is aware of everything that's happening here. So the question ultimately then was, well, why didn't God stop it? So we're going to talk about that as best we can tonight. It could be said that the unjust distribution of evil disproves God. Why do bad things happen to some people? Why do good things happen to the why do good things happen to bad people? Bad things happen to good people. It doesn't make it it's no rhyme or reason why it happens. Right? It's just why why don't we all wonder that question in the, you know as you're rolling over and you're tucking your head into your pillow and you're about to fall asleep and you say why God? You know? 
And we challenge God sometimes like that. I mean, we do. And I believe in God. I love God. I think God is, a, God, I think God is, is real. But sometimes I, I, I do that. I'm like, why, God? So me and God have to get together, and he has to straighten me out. Because we all ask the question, why God? The answer for evil boils down to this, sin and atonement. Sin and atonement. God deals with sin in this, the sin in, your, in you, the sinner, by atoning for sin by the Savior. Remember, that's what happened. That's how you got saved, right? You were a sinner. You had sin in you. God wants to get the sin out of you. The best way you can get it out of you is you go through Jesus Christ, you get washed by his blood, get cleaned up by his blood, become a saved person, and now you no longer have that sin in you. So God deals with the sinner by atoning for sin by the Savior. So the problem of evil then would be painted like this. If this is this was the this is the, the non believing challenge regarding evil. Uh, we got to talk about this so you can kind of see the position that most people come at this. If, if God were all-powerful, he could destroy evil. So since he doesn't destroy evil, then he's not all-powerful. But isn't that one of the things that we say about God? He's omnipresent, or no, is it omnipresent? No, it's omnipotent. Thank you, omnipotent, omnipower, omnipotent. He's all-powerful. That's what the word potent means, power. But if he was all-powerful, he's omnipotent or omnipotent, then he should destroy, he, he could destroy evil. And if God were all good, he would want to destroy evil. So why didn't he just do it? What's, what's the deal? But God is, but evil is not destroyed yet. So you got to put the yet part. God, evil is not destroyed yet. But it will be destroyed. It will be. Therefore, this is the finalizing couple, two more statements in the argument. All, an all-powerful and an all-good God does not exist. If evil is there, and we all agree evil is there, there's some form of evil everywhere. How do we define evil? Well, we don't like it. That's how we define it. The problem with evil claims to prove that there is no God, but that's not going to happen. We're going to deal with it. Well, let's, the problem of evil is unique for three reasons. First... The problem of evil, uh, there are many proofs or apparent proofs for God, but there's only one argument that even claims to prove that there is no God. So this is the one argument that an atheist would throw at you and you'd say, this is why I don't believe in God, because there's evil in the world. If there wasn't, if there wasn't any evil, then I, then I would believe that there's a God. That would be their position. There are objections to the arguments for God. But even if they're successful, these objections only point out their arguments are invalid or inconclusive, that they do not disprove God's existence. Just because there is evil doesn't disprove God's existence. It's just another aspect of our relationship with God that we need to understand. So there's an alternative explanation for religious belief and experience. But even if these were successful and irrefutable, they would only provide an alternative hypothesis. They still would not disprove God. So this first claim is just, we're just picking it apart and throwing it away. The last thing that I would say about it is that there are serious practical and personal objections against faith, such as observed wickedness. I mean, you know, I mentioned earlier about, uh, you know, priests abusing children and the church covering it up. 
so that would be an observed wickedness and hypocrisy among believers and the incon- inconvenience and shock to one's ego of, of having to repent of cherished sins. But these don't prove that God doesn't exist either. The things, even that, all of that stuff doesn't prove that God exists. The second part of the argument is this. Evil is a universal problem. Everyone wonders why had things, why, why things happen to good people, and some wonder why things happen to, at all. And incidentally, this very wonder hints at a solution to the problem of evil. The fact that you're wondering, asking this question, proves um, um, hints at the solution to the problem of evil. The fact that we do not naturally accept injustice we don't naturally accept suffering. We don't naturally accept sin, disease, or death. And our, uh, our outrage at evil, our outrage at evil, is a clue that we are in touch with the standard of goodness, standard of goodness, by which we judge the world for its defectiveness or as failing, as falling drastically short of the mark. Basically, because you know something is evil, you are, you know that there's something better can come. Something better is available. Otherwise, we would just accept evil as, well, that's just the way it is. If you know it's evil, you know it's wrong, you know it's bad, we're, we're actually making a comparison. Even if we don't verbalize, how do we know that that's evil? How do we know that that's bad? Because we have a God. So it's not a denial of God. It's actually a, supporter, a, supportment of, a support of God. The fact that we judge something evil might might even be developed into an argument for the existence of the standard of perfect goodness, which is implied in our judgment, and thus for the existence of God, of, of a perfect goodness whom evil's existence seems to disprove. So even though people wouldn't argue that evil disproves God or proves that God doesn't exist, you have to base, well, how do you know that's evil? How, how can you say that is an evil thing if you don't have a goodness to reference it to? You didn't, you didn't come up with this is good. God put it in your heart what is good. That's the thing that we, we don't recognize a lot of times. God actually put it in our heart. We know what's good and bad because God has spoken to us about what is good and bad. Even if we've never read the Bible, we know what's good and bad. You watch some of these movies, you people, it's amazing just how evil comes out in, in certain movies, in certain programs and shows, and the, the, the debauchery and the, and, and the, the butchering, and just the, the terrible things that happen. How did those people come up with these ideas? If they didn't know what evil was, or if they didn't know what good was, they would have never been able to make a movie like that. That's, that's just how I look at things anyway. The third thing about this problem of, this is unique for three problems, is the problem of evil is that it is a practical objection. It is not merely the alienation between two concepts, good and evil, but the alienation between a little child and her father when she looks up through tears and asks him, why did you let me hurt so badly? There's, there's a question here, why did you let me hurt? And we need, so we look up at God, we say, why are you letting me hurt? I, I mean, I, I went through that with my, with my sickness. I went through it for a long time. And I tried to keep it quiet. I mean, it was just me and God. Why? Why, why? why did this have to happen to me? But I've learned in my questioning of God why 
that God has got me and he's got me. It's good what's happening because I am stronger in my walk with the Lord. I'm closer to God because of what has happened to me. The heart of the problem is not found in words like ours in a book. Uh, it's not found in a book but, uh, other than the Bible, but in the words of the cross. Remember when Jesus Christ was hanging on the cross? What did he say? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's Jesus Christ. I mean, he's God. He's hanging on the cross and he said, why did you forsake me? He's like, why are you letting me suffer? Why did, you, why did God let his son suffer? Because there was good in the whole issue of, of that evil that took place on his son. The good that took place on the evil of his son was that you all are saved now. The problem with evil is just a paper problem. It's a problem that they want to put down in paper, but it's not a problem in lives. Let me define evil for you real quick because I want to make sure we're all on the same page. The argument or the problem of evil concludes that the existence of evil is in one way or another incompatible with the existence of God. Evil and God, they would say, if, if there's evil, there's no God. So, okay, there's evil, so throw away God because there can't be a God if there's evil. But here's the thing. The argument of evil concludes that the existence of God is in, is, they say it's incompatible, but the evidence is it makes sense because we don't have a way of defining evil if God doesn't exist. C.S. Lewis, many of you have read many of his books. C.S. Lewis defined evil. This is a good definition. I actually think I got this on the slide. Let me see. Yeah, there it is. C.S. Lewis defined evil as fundamentally the problem of pain, wherein an experience of pain is an irreductible, irreducible conscious feeling or perception, perceived experience that hurts. It just hurts. Pain hurts. Evil hurts. I mean, if, even if it's not a physical pain, it, evil, evil behavior just hurts. Yet evil is not a thing. And it's an incredibly amazing thing. Evil is, so we think about the, in the thing, but evil is not a thing. It's not a substance. It's not an entity. If evil were, being, were, were a being, if evil was a being, the problem of evil would not be solvable. If evil was a person, evil could not be, we couldn't solve evil. God is being, and all that God created is good. We, are, we, we need to know that. We know that from Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. Genesis 1, 31 says, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and the evening and the morning was the sixth day. If evil were a being, then God made it, thereby making, made it, thereby making God not all good. If he made evil, uh, if, he, if he made the being that would be evil, there would be no good. If evil were the, the being and God did not make evil, then God is not all-powerful. And evil is not a thing, therefore, uh, either a, for a thing cannot be evil in itself. And the last thing I would say about this is that evil, even the, 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 even the devil, and I don't know how you think about the devil, but even the devil is simply good gone bad. Ezekiel 28, verse 15 says, Thou wast talking about the devil, thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou was created until iniquity was found in thee. So he was good until he went bad. So evil 
Evil is not a thing, as I said. It's real. Evil is real, but it's not a thing. Thomas Aquinas defined evil as the absence of God. I don't have that on the slide. St. Augustine described evil as the privation. That I think I do have. Yeah, there it is. The word privation means to a depriving. Evil is a depriving that exists in something that was originally good and perfect. There's a, there's a corruption that has taken place in something that was good and perfect, and that's evil. Evil is a nonconformity of our will to God's will. So we, we should be praying all the time that we are conforming our will to God's will because typically evil is not conforming our will to God's will. And this is the point of Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 3. God made all things good. Man opposed God's will, making things into evil. So there are different types of evil. Of, I'm sorry, different. there are differences in types or modes of evil, which can be categorized two ways. So there's basically either moral bad, moral evil, or physical evil. Moral evil would be a sin evil that we engage in, evil that we freely will, evil that we are directly responsible for, while physical evil is suffering, evil passively endured, evil that is against our will, and evil that is not responsible for. The origin of sin and of evil is man's free will. Think about that for just a minute. The origin of evil is ultimately uh, the source. The source of that is man's free will. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. The origin of suffering is the relationship between nature and ourselves, which we'll talk about here in just a moment as well. So let me talk about the source of evil. We talk about defining it. We defined evil. Now, what is the source of evil? The Bible says that God creates evil. That's a hard verse to deal with, but the Bible does say in Isaiah 47, verse 5, or 45, verse 7, I form the light, create darkness, I make peace, and create evil. I, the Lord, do these things. So how could a loving God, all-powerful, all-knowledgeable, subject us to this kind of world? How could he do that? How could he let us be in, have this evil in the world? The answer is pretty straightforward. God created beings who had the capacity to fail. And this, is, this goes back to our relationship with God from the beginning. He, he created... Adam and Eve with the capacity to fail. Failing meant making the choice not to do good. Think about Adam and Eve for just a moment. What was their biggest failure? Was, hmm? Temptation. That was the lure, was temptation. But what did they do? They disobeyed. So there's an issue of obedience. They did, their will was in charge at that very moment instead of God's will being in charge. And so they stepped, they stepped away from, so they had the capacity within them to follow their own will instead of following God's will. We all have that same capacity. Either, even if you're saved, you know, you still have the capacity to follow your own will and ignore God's will. We can all do that, and a lot of times we do. Just as darkness is the absence of light, wouldn't you agree with that? Darkness is the absence of light. And cold is the absence of heat, right? I don't think that's pretty straightforward. 
Thomas Aquinas, as we said, declared that evil is the absence of good. Evil is the absence of good. God created a world. It's an amazing thing when we think about it. God created a world that is organized and ordered by his commandments, yet he imparted into humans, and I would say angels as well, the ability to choose to disobey those commands, which in itself is an evil event. You ever think about disobeying God or I'm not going to do what God says as an evil event? It is. Because you're going against the good of God when you choose not to do, not to do what God is commanding him to, us to do. The last thing I'll say here is this. Evil came into being with the rebellion of Satan, came into being from the evil of Satan, the, dis- the rebellion of Satan, the disobedience of Satan, and it came into the world, evil came into the world through the disobedience of Adam and Eve. So I'm going to quote a guy by the name of Greg Kokel. He is a, uh, um, a speaker and writer regarding concepts like this, and he says, Human freedom was used in such a way as to diminish goodness in the world, and that diminution, that lack of goodness, that that is what we call evil. What is clear in, is, in Isaiah 45, verse 7, is that the choice that God in his sovereign decrees has given to man, God has given either peace or, peace or evil. He, he's, he's brought into your life the option of peace, and, peace or evil, and he is the maker of peace and the creator of evil, not in his existence, but in his potential based on the free will choice of man. Like I mentioned, those movies and stuff that depict all kinds of behaviors, they, they didn't have to make that movie. They chose to make that movie. They chose to, 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 to uh, glorify that kind of behavior. So here's the thing at the end of, the, at the end of this, not really at the end, at the end of, of the evil conversation, because we still got to talk about suffering. But the evil conversation is this. God will eliminate evil. God denounces evil. He will eliminate it. So we're thinking about why is there evil? Well, God's already got evil address. It's going to be taken care of. If we follow in his will, if we obey in his will, if we listen to him, if we're obediently obediently living his commandments, we will be out of the issue of, of evil we don't have to worry about it anymore. He is going. He denounces evil. We're com- we're commanded to abstain from evil. Not no one is against evil more than God. That's an amazing concept. Nobody nobody hates evil more than he does. In First Thessalonians chapter five verse twenty two, it says, "Abstain from all appearances of evil." That's a command that we should not get involved in evil. Evil look even if, even if it's not evil. Don't don't. Don't involve yourself in something that appears evil. Romans twelve seventeen. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. So God's very nature is the opposite of evil. He calls us to turn away from evil, yet he allows us the choice and the opportunity to disobey him. I don't really fully grab under that concept all the time that God allows us the ability to disobey him by exercising our will over his 
Ezekiel 33, 11. As I live, saith the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? Turn away from evil or suffer the consequences of evil being bringing on death. So God denounces evil, number one. Number two, God defeats evil. So by, by God's life and death on the cross, Christ came to break evil's power over mankind. Isaiah 25, 8 says this, He will swallow up death in victory, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all the faces and rebuke all his people, and the rebuke of his people shall he take away from off all the earth, for the Lord hath spoken it. At his crucifixion, at Christ's crucifixion, he absorbed the punishment for our evil, and he he provided forgiveness for it and freedom from evil. God is going to God is going to address evil very easily, and He actually already has by His Son's death on the cross. The evil that would come at you, He's taken care of. He's got it basically took it away from you. You don't have to worry about it. And the last thing about God, so He He, def- he denounces evil, He defeats evil, and the last is He destroys evil. So just as evil had a beginning, it will have an end. There's another guy I'd like to quote. His name is Hugh Ross. He was a scientist, a believing scientist. He explained that God allowed the possibility of evil in space and time so that he could eliminate it for all eternity in a new creation that will replace the universe. He said this, An expression of his love for humanity, God created the universe the way he did to protect us from the future touched by evil. He made the cosmos to serve as an arena in which evil and suffering can be rooted out finally and eternally, simultaneously maintaining the human capacity to exercise free will and thus to experience uh, and express love. That's an incredible main thing to say, that God created the universe to contain the evil, which I think is where... Satan has been destined to for right now is in the second heaven, what we would call the second heaven, space, outer space, the universe. So by allowing a momentary presence in human existence, he not only defeated it on the cross, but also will ultimately remove it for, 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 from remove it forever. And because of this, in eternity, we will be able to exist with our free wills intact without the presence of evil anywhere to chat. Basically, when God gets ready to take us back to heaven, we don't, we're not going to be faced, facing evil anymore. Evil was not in heaven. Evil is not in where God is at. And we're going to be where God is at. There will not be any evil there. We might deal with it now. God has dealt with it for eternity. God has eliminated evil for eternity. We don't have to deal with evil anymore. He is taking care of it. And he's eliminated it completely from from uh, from the universe. Any questions on evil? It's a powerful concept to think about. It's kind of hard sometimes to get your head wrapped around it. You've got to look at these things over and mull it over and pray about it. But let's talk about the challenge for, uh, to God, one more challenge to God about suffering. Okay, so if there's evil, evil equates a lot of times in people's lives to suffering. So the same pictures... 
uh, the Twin Towers, uh, the Sri Lanka tsunami, the uh, earthquake in Haiti, and just crime in general, uh, have the same kind of things. What these events represent is an act of evil, while the impact of evil is what we would call suffering. The impact of evil is what we call suffering. So again, talk about C.S. Lewis's statement. He defined evil as fundamentally the problem of pain. Remember we saw that quote? Where an experience of pain is irreductible, I'm sorry, irreducible, conscious feeling or perceived experience that hurts. Evil, you know, you know it's like whatever it is, you just hurt because something evil has happened. You just hurt. You ache, whether it's a emotional hurt ache or a physical hurt ache. Suffering, evil brings on suffering. That experience, so, or the source of pain is evil, but the hurt is suffering. So the, the source is evil, which we're talking about, and, and the, the result of the, is suffering, which we're talking about now. So evil and suffering, as I said earlier, form a, form a unique relationship. If it were not for evil, there would be no suffering, and suffering is a direct result of evil then. It kind of goes back and forth. Peter wrote that, um, Peter said that it is better for us to suffer for well-doing. Remember that verse? It's better for us to suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. But suffering still comes as a result of an evil action, whatever it is. First Peter three seventeen. For it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well doing than for evil doing. He means that we should not be, not be the reason for our suffering, but suffering does come from evil. But we shouldn't be the source of that evil at the moment. The twofold weight of, or the twofold burden, evil and suffering, on every single person leads to a serious challenge to the reality of God. So we just considered the problem of evil. And we talked about morality earlier. So. Um, Another argument to try to prove that God doesn't exist is the problem of suffering. So the problem of suffering is just as potent, just as strong, but it does something quite different than the argument from evil. It takes on a different perspective. Here, the argument is not whether, not whether God exists, but whether God can, whether God can exist and suffering can exist together. Because God and suffering go hand in hand. Can they, can He be in the same? universe as suffering is god allow suffering so the argument sounds like this how do we reconcile the existence of suffering with the existence of an all-loving and all-knowing god how is that possible if god if god is all-powerful he could do something to prevent or end suffering he could take your pain away and so a lot of times that's what our prayer is oh take my pain away if God is all-loving, he would want to take your pain away. Therefore, and because there's a tremendous amount of suffering in all the world, therefore God either is all-loving or not all-powerful. There's a, there's a balance in all of that. As you... Okay, so I want to define suffering now. We've defined evil. We've defined morality. Well, let's define suffering. 
Defining it is actually no easy task because suffering, suffering is both abstract and subjective, right? What does that, what does that mean? Well, some, people, some people's suffering is different than other people's suffering. Give me, give me, let me give you a couple of examples. I didn't get the new iPhone 12. I'm suffering. Compare that with, I just found out that I have cancer. Well, now, which one is really suffering? What about my son was killed in action in Iraq? Who's suffering really in these three examples? Each one of these are a level of suffering for somebody. And while we can make light of the iPhone scandal, we can see that some common characteristics of suffering do exist. I mean, you know, your your uh, 10-year-old child wanted that phone for their birthday so desperately, now they didn't get it, now they're suffering, and they're in deep pain in their bedroom, bawling their eyes out, because you wouldn't give them a phone. That's suffering for sure. But there are common threads. Compare these things. It includes any combination of physical, emotional, and mental discomfort. That would be suffering. Uh, So, okay, let's solve two examples up there. Um, it manifests um, it manifests a threat to the security of the sufferer. That's what suffering is all about, is your security has been violated in some way. It leaves the sufferer weakened, and it destroys a part of the sufferer's um, existence. At least they think it does. I could never exist without my iPhone 12 or 13, or whatever the latest number is. I don't even know anymore. When I taught this the first time, I had an iPhone 6 listed there. So the Bible uses many various forms of the word suffer. You know, if you did a word study on the word suffer, you'd find a lot of places where the word suffer is used. So let me just kind of give you a brief, real quick uh, example. The Old Testament verses give the sense of allowance. I suffer you, I allow, I permit you. Um, Genesis chapter 20, verse 6, And God said unto him in a dream, Yea, I know that thou didst this in the integrity of thy heart, for I also withheld thee from sinning against me, therefore suffered, or the word permit, I thee not to touch her. I, I prevented I prevented you, I suffered, I didn't allow that to happen. Another example is found in Exodus 22, verse 18, Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. Now, not a per- permit. The word suffer, can, in this case, means permit. The New Testament has two basic usages of the word suffer. One is to be the same kind of tense as the Old Testament. Uh, like in Matthew 3.15, Jesus answered and said unto him, Suffer it to be foe now, for thus it becometh all, us all to fulfill all righteousness. Permit me to get, you, get baptized, Jesus says to John. Permit me to be baptized. It's suffered, let it happen now. However, the usage that we typically associate the word suffering with is pain. Suffering and pain. Hebrews 2.9. For we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he would be the grace, that by the grace of God should taste death for every man. And in Romans 8.18. For I reckon that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which we shall be revealed in us. So suffering in this situation is there's some pain involved. There's some, 
there's, uh, there's always associated with the idea of pain and hurt, whether it's emotional, physical, or whatever. So there's, there, are, there is an answer that you can give to the, the, the atheist that challenges on the basis of suffering. Why is, the answer to the why of suffering, why is there suffering? Every, everyone recognizes that many times suffering can be unjust. Okay, I'm not even dealing with that right now. It can be unjust, it can be unfair, or for no obvious reason or apparent reason, it just is. A couple of examples is why, why do children get leukemia? Why do parents get Alzheimer's? Why do some people or why are some people blind or deaf or others with countless disabilities? On and on and on. The list can go on. We can we can go a long ways to that list. But this is an actual weakness in the argument for suffering. If we somehow were able to give a valid reason for suffering, would suffering then be more acceptable to the atheist? Now think about that for just a minute. If they're challenging, why does God allow suffering? Well, how much suffering would you would you think is okay? Would would any suffering be okay with you, Mr. Atheist? How much suffering is okay? How much suffering is not okay? None? Totally none? What what are you at? Where do you stand? It does seem that this is the way in some places like India or Middle Eastern countries that pr- promote Islamic laws or in the mind of an atheist. The atheist has no answer for the reason for or the need for suffering. And in fact, while challenging God on it, they fail to come to to give good reason for why suffering is there either. They'll challenge you for suffering. Challenge them back. Well, why is there suffering? If there is no God and God doesn't, if God is not here, why why does anybody suffer? Why is suffering here? At all, God or no God, why is suffering here? Atheists have no answer. In fact, they won't answer that. This is Richard Dawkins. This is what he has to say about suffering. This is a long quote. I have it on the screen. I think it's like three screens long. Richard Dawkins, uh, he's an atheist, uh, prolific writer, teacher, speaker. He says this, The total amount of suffering per year in the natural world is beyond any decent contemplation. During the minute that it takes me to compose this sentence, thousands of animals are being eaten alive. Many others are running for their lives, whimpering in fear. Others are slowly being devoured from within by rasping parasites. Thousands of all kinds are dying as starvation, thirst, and disease. It must be so. Notice he says, it has to be that way. That's just the way it is. Goes on, he says, if there is a time of plenty... This very fact will automatically lead to an increase in the population until the natural state of starvation and misery is restored. Starvation and misery shall be restored. I mean, this is Dawkins. He's he's a complete atheist, completely, 100%. I lost my place. (laughs) Anyway, he goes on, In a universe of electrons, electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces, and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason it just in it, nor any justice. So, well, thank you. One last part. He goes on and he says, The universe that we observe has precisely the properties that we should expect in it if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, no nothing, but pitiless indifference. Thank you, Richard. But he's saying is, if there is no God, then 
you get what you get, and I hope you land on a safe chip. Because otherwise, it's a, just indifference. That's a, that's, he's one of the leading atheists of, the, of today, or probably the last 15, 20 years. And that is his view of suffering. Doesn't help us at all, does it? Not at all. Some believers present the case that free will is the source or answer to why suffering. But it isn't. Is, is free will really the... I know I talked about it being evil, but what about suffering? The argument in this case would be that God being a well-knowing... I'm sorry, an all-knowing and all-powerful God could in fact create humans with no desire. And since he did not, then he is not all-powerful or God desires for us to sin. So either he made it the way we made us, and he was hoping that we would sin. Crazy thought. The example in the Bible is Jesus. The example is that Jesus said that he himself had the ability to sin. You know, Jesus had the ability. He could have sinned. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, it says that he was tempted in all points set without sin. So he could have done things that were wrong, but he didn't. He didn't. He wasn't tempted. The book of Job gives us insight as well into the tempt into, into suffering. Now, if you've been any time in suffer in, in the book of Job, you know that Job went through an awful lot. In chapter one, verse fifteen, it says a band of Sabians rustled his livestock and killed all of his servants. That's the first thing that happened to him. In chapter 1, verse 16, his sheep were consumed by a fire from heaven. In chapter 1, verse 17, his camels were stolen and all his servants there that took care of the camels, they were slain. In chapter 1, verse 19, a great wind destroyed the house, killing his children while have, who were all together together having dinner. He lost his property, his children, his suffering. He lost his property, his children, and his health. And during this time, he had no idea why these things were happening to him. Did not Job suffer? Absolutely. Physical, emotional, financial, everything, anything, any kind of suffering that you could ever experience, he was experiencing that. Three of his friends, wonderful guys they were, thought thought terrible sins must be at the root of his misfortunes. Job himself came to question God's goodness and power, just like we all would ultimately do. In the end, of course, Job regained his faith, I talked about that. I kind of used myself as an example. I just questioned myself, questioned God, why, why this, why this, why this? But ultimately, it was like, ah, because there is a God. Job finally realized that there is a God. He came to himself, and he no longer questioned God's goodness and his power. In the end, Job regained his faith, his wealth, and much more. God restored all that he had lost. But were these terrible events necessary? Were they all those bad things necessary for, for, to get to Job's uh, position? Is that right now? Why did Job suffer? Why did his children die? And what were his, why were his riches stolen, stolen? So we need to understand the book of Job. And, of course, this is, a, this is a great. I think Steve Fleshman does a great job teaching the book of Job. And uh, so if nothing else, you should... Get with him, and he'll, he can go through the whole book. He loves it. Anyway, understanding the book of Job. The theme, the theme that's running through the book of Job is a correction of misconceptions arising from man's imperfect knowledge of God's ways. The whole purpose of Job 
is to correct your misunderstanding about God's perfect ways. So he throws stuff out there like every one of us could experience what Job has experienced, and in some cases, maybe many of you have. Where you've lost family members, you've lost possessions, you've lost friends, whatever. So God wants a, God wanted Job to correct his misconceptions. And a second theme of Job is the evidence that there is a divine purpose running through the suffering of the godly and that life's bitterest valleys are reconcilable with the divine purpose. I know that's not on the board, but let me, I'll read that one more time just so you can swallow that up. A second theme in the book of Job is the evidence that there is a divine purpose running through the sufferings of the godly and the life's bitterest valleys are reconcilable with this divine purpose. That God is there. At the beginning in the book of Job, there was a dialogue that takes place up through verse 12. Additionally, the last 11 verses of chapter 42, the last chapter of the book of Job, the the last 11 verses of chapter 2 are a restoration of all that was lost. So everything that happened in verses chapter 1, verse all the way through the verse uh, verse 12 or so uh, is the, is the dialogue about what's about to happen, and then we see everything that happens, and then the last eleven verses of chapter forty-two is a restoration between first the first twelve and the last eleven verses. Job wrestles with the question of why is he suffering? That's the whole book. Why am I suffering? And God is God is working him through that, and his friends aren't helping. They try, but they're not really helping because God God said that Job needs to learn this lesson. His three counselors have no idea why the re- what the reason was for Job's d- uh, struggle. His wife, remember what his wife said? Everybody remember that? Curse God and die? Okay, well, that didn't help. Fortunately, he didn't do it because he knew that wasn't the answer. His friends and his wife did not know that the first 12 verses, they didn't know what happened in the first 12 verses of the chapter, of the, of the beginning of the book. They didn't know what was going on. They didn't know that there was a conversation between God and the devil about Job. What they missed, what they missed was an explanation for suffering even when they were not privy to the explanation. That's what most of us miss. We miss, we're not privy privy to why God is allowing us to suffer. What they miss, what his, his friends and his wife miss, and what most people miss is that there is an explanation for suffering even when we are not privy to the explanation. There is a reason why we suffer. First, the explanation. The reason, the purpose was determined in heaven. That's what was beginning uh, at the beginning of the book. Second, there was an outcome, a blessing that had to, to be had at the conclusion. So this is important for me and you. We can read the first 12 verses and know the reason and the last 11 verses and know the blessing. And because we can do do that, we can know the same holes in our case as well. Basically, whatever God said about Job and he's he's a a righteous man and he's going to do this and this is what's going to happen to him. And then he gets blessed at the end. You know what? God said the same thing about me. This is I'm going to have to deal with him in this way. He's going to suffer. But at the end, he'll be blessed. I don't know everything that God is doing, but I know this. I know that God has got me in control, and he's got me 
and he's taking care of me. So I guess I'm in this situation probably the best example uh, for you tonight. The story of Job is for you and for me as well to know that there is a reason, even if we can't know what the reason is. There is a reason. And we'll find out when we get to heaven if we don't know right now. There are some things that God cannot reveal to us at present. There are things that happen that God just cannot reveal. You know what it's like if you've been a parent. You know sometimes your children are like, why, 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 why? They never stop with the whys. I can't tell you right now, just go to bed. Because, 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 yes. So, I mean, this, we do the same thing to God. He's not always going to tell us why he's, the answer to why. There are things that God cannot reveal. In Job chapter 16, verse 12, Jesus, or God says this, I have, I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. You, I, I want to tell you, I'd love to tell you why, but you're not ready for the why. You wouldn't understand the why. The story of Job is also for you and for me to comprehend the reality of our faith. Had Job understood the explanation and known why it was occurring, if he knew what blessing was proceeds from, from it, his faith would have been vanished. He would not have had any faith anymore. He would never have come out of the suffering purified in the refiner's fire. That's an incredible thing to give up just so that you can know why. Don't go through the refiner's fire and not know why. You just God wants you to experience these things so you can be blessed at the end. So this is the message of Job. This is it. It's not on the board, I don't think. No, maybe it is. Yep, this is the explanation for his suffering. That Job was not meant to know it. He was not meant to know it, but there is an eternal blessing yet to be enjoyed even for us. So suffering, sometimes we, we have to suffer. And God's gonna, God doesn't give you the answer why until you get to heaven. But there's value in suffering. I know that sounds kind of weird. There is value in suffering. So let's go through them and then we'll be done. Suffering highlights the frailty of human beings. While men generally think that they're the masters of their fate and the captains of their souls, Suffering brings back to the reality of how, how frail we are. Number two, suffering can draw you to God, which is partly what God wants to do. It's natural to seek some level of higher source for help. That may be doctor or priest, but eventually it's God. Because what, what's the first place we go when we're suffering and we're in pain? First place we go is we go to the uh, CVS uh, urgent care, right? That didn't help, so I'm going to go to the hospital. That didn't help, so I'm going to try to find somebody else. But eventually, you're going to go to God. And everybody, no matter who they claim to be, turns to God eventually. When we're hurting, the God of comfort is waiting to help. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Number three. Suffering shows sin for what it really is. Whether the suffering imparted upon us is from others or from nature, it is the evident reality that sin entered by one man and death comes upon all men. For with the end of the 
And the end of all, the most important eternal point of all of suffering is that it's, it's, got, it's, it's directly related to sin. So without saving grace, eternal death due to sin is the reality that we face, right? If you're not saved, what, what do you have left to face? You have death. That's it. Nobody should perish without Christ first being presented, but sin and his curse is upon all, both creature and creation. Death is the end of that Christ took us for on. Death is the end that Christ took on for us. Number four, suffering teaches compassion for others. So sometimes you have to go through things just so that you can know what it means to suffer, so you can. Have compassion for other people who are suffering. Hebrews 2.18. For if it, for in that he himself hath suffered, being tempted, he is able to secure or to care for them that are tempted. That's Hebrew 2.18. Clearly it indicates that Christ himself had been the subject, had been subject to all that we have experienced, making him the greater physician. And so we learn sympathy. You know the Greek words. Uh, sympath and pathos means with feeling, sympathy, with feeling. Um, it's different than empathy. You know, sympath, people talk about sympathy and empathy. Sympathy is having feeling. Empathy is just be in the same feeling that they're in. You feel exactly how they feel. To have empathy is to get inside and share the pain of a friend who had, who, while to have sympathy is to just simply be to have a tenderness for the sufferer. It's a little bit different. Number five, suffering enhances our prayer life. Yep, here we go. Let me back up. Here we go. Praying is an instinctive response to suffering, but every prayer, effective prayer, is a learned experience. I was telling the real life class because we were in the book of Colossians, chapter four, last weekend, and pointed out because Paul said, pray. Without ceasing, and I'll you know just praying, talking about praying, and I told the whole class is that the the greatest example of a Christian is not that you go to church, it's that you pray. The greatest example of a Christian is that you actually pray, that you that you're on your knees sometimes, whether you're on your knees or not, doesn't matter, but you're praying. Number six, suffering teaches us. I mean, I think I misplaced. One more. I'm not going fast enough. Last, all usually I go too fast. Suffering tempers the soul and helps prepare it for eternity. First Peter one six and seven says, "Wherein ye greatly rejoice now, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire." might be found one to praise and honor and glory of the appearing of Jesus Christ. So just as precious metals are purified by the heat of fire, so life's trials in general and suffering for Christ in particular build strength into your soul. So so suffering is for your growth. I think we're here at number seven. Suffering nurtures the noblest virtues of mankind that whatever you're capable of consider for the example of courage courage is a great example of of things it's a nat it's it is natural to perceive courage to be one of the prime traits of humanity 
And by way of contrast, cowardice is to be reprehensible. But courage may, may be defined as the ability to act rationally in the face of fear. If, however, the human family were immune to hardship, dangers, and suffering, there could be no facing it, hence no courage. So, I don't know if that makes sense to you. I hope that makes sense. Let me try to do, say this again. Courage is defined as the ability to act rationally in face of fear. But, however, uh, if, the human, if humanity was immune to hardships and dangers and suffering, there couldn't be no facing it and no courage. Because you don't know what it means. You don't know what, you don't know what you're going through. You don't understand. Courage arises in the presence of danger, and there are many qualities that we simply cannot possess in the absence of hardship. Okay, so let me wrap this up because we're a couple minutes over. So there's, there is no incompatibility between all-powerful and all-loving God and suffering in the world. It's just, it is. Quite the opposite. Suffering demonstrates the eternal working of God to restore man. Without God, there would be no rhyme nor reason for suffering. Richard Dawkins quote. In fact, I would think it's accurate to state that suffering is the only identifiable is only identifiable in the presence of God. You can only identify suffering in the presence of God. Don't let the atheists throw you for a loop that on evil and suffering, because they 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 really are just off. They're completely off base themselves. They have no answer for why. If God doesn't exist, how do you even know that evil is there? If God doesn't exist, how do you know that suffering is there? And if you haven't experienced it, then you know, read Job. All right, well, we're done. That's, uh, so next week, we're going to finish up. So my title next week, if you've got the handout from the, for, for the whole packet, is, um, um, where did it go? Oh, here it is. The Reality, the Resurrection, and the ro- Royalty of Christ. So we're going to talk about that, and I'm going to try to get through the whole thing. Um, but if not, then it'll take two weeks, but that's okay. We definitely will be done in two weeks for sure, if not one. And so we'll we'll get all to that next week. So we're going to talk about is is Christ real? I was reading an article on the news and on the news stream that I read all the time that they now say Christ never existed. The man Jesus Christ never existed. How can you say that? Anyway, we're we're going to go through all of that. The reality of Christ, his resurrection. Did he really resurrect? And then, of course, his royalty, meaning, is he God? Let's pray. Father.